Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. I hope that you're all doing well. Welcome to the dark and eerie world of Creepscast. Join us today as we delve into the deepest and darkest corners of the internet, exploring the unexplainable end of the macabre. This week's spine-chilling tales will keep you on the edge of your seat. So let's get into it, as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. Something terrifying happened during my night shift at Walmart, written by Horror Writer 1717. It was a long and lonely road, straight as a weed stalk and dry like you wouldn't believe. My car sat idling on the yellow line, burping out exhaust as the sun lay bleeding on the horizon. I had come a long way with further yet to go, but something in me, something itchy and unnerving said that it was time to stop. I looked at the words glowing on my phone. It was a prompt for some writer's group or something. It sounds like something King would write, I thought. And we all know what a hack he's become. I wish I could churn out trash like he does and make millions from it. But I'm no writer. I'm clean up on ILA 15. Blared over the radio clipped my hip. I knew that it was my turn, but still, I glanced around the break room for anyone that I could get to do it for me. Unfortunately, there was no one. While I had been zoned out, staring at my phone like a zombie, everybody else had finished their break and left, which meant that I had something to look forward to after cleaning up some customer's mess. A butt chewing from my crew leader, Amy. I left the break room and headed for the supply room to get my mop and bucket. ILA 15 was on the other side of the store, so I knew that it wouldn't be long until... Clean up on ILA 15. The radio blared more forcefully. I ripped it off my belt, thinking of all the things that I would like to say in response. But I swallowed my pride and said, In route. When I got there, Amy was standing beside a puddle of something brown and liquid that I didn't want to identify. She had her arms folded across her chest and was tapping her toe. Did you finally finish your break? She said with no hint of actual interest. Yes, ma'am. I said pulling my bucket next to the puddle and slopping water onto it. Watch it. She said as some of the water mixed with the brown liquid and splashed onto her shoes. I'm so sorry, I said, not meaning a word of it. Her face turned to fire engine red and looked like it was about to explode. You're fired, she squealed. I found it odd that such a large woman would have such a high voice when angry. You can't fire me, I said leaning on my mop. 
You're only a crew leader, not a member of management. She opened her mouth to say something, and then closed it as her face turned an even deeper shade of red. We'll see, she sputtered, and then turned to storm off nearly falling, slipping on her wet shoe. She recovered and continued storming away, as I did everything I could not to burst into tears laughing. I finished my odious chore and took the bucket back to the supply room to empty and rinse it. I had to rinse the bucket a few times to get the stench out. I smiled, thinking about Amy trying to get it out of her shoe. By the time that I was done, I stepped out of the store with half the lights off. I breathed a sigh of relief. My shift overlapped with Amy's shift. We would come in in a few hours before the store had closed and once it did, we were free to go do our restocking and cleaning duties. The first hour was usually spent dodging cashiers as they took their trays to count. After they left, we locked the doors and it was only myself, Sam, and Greg in the massive and empty store. I won't lie, there were many times that my imagination got the best of me as I roamed the empty aisles of the half-lit store, and the three of us had played pranks on each other. But tonight wasn't starting out like that. Sam wasn't feeling good and was already talking about going home early. Greg was in his zone with his earbuds in, listening to creepypastas as he stocked the shelves. I just pulled my third skit out of the stockroom when something had darted in front of me. I stopped so quickly that the pallet's forward momentum pushed me, nearly knocking me over. Very funny, guys, I said into my radio. You can knock it off now. What are you talking about? Sam said. Whoever's hiding by the stockroom doors can come out now. I'm not falling for it. I'm over in hardware and Greg is a few aisles down from me in automotive, Sam said. Yeah, sure you are, I said. I look over towards hardware, Sam said. As I did, I saw a beam of light flash up toward the dark part of the ceiling. Did you see my light? Yeah, I did, I said slowly, suddenly not wanting to turn the corner toward where whatever it was that had just disappeared. What did you see? Sam said. That must have been my imagination. I said trying to convince myself as much as him. Okay, you good. Yeah, no problem. I pulled my pallet jack forward slowly and peeked around the corner. Nothing was there except a seemingly endless aisle of shelves. I shook myself mentally for allowing myself to get spooked so easily and then I pulled my pallet jack down the aisle past toys and into housewares. I forced myself to stare straight ahead and not glance down the aisles as I passed them. As I passed the last toy aisle, my pallet truck seemed to get heavier. It was as if one of the wheels was stuck on something. I stopped and went around the back to check the wheels. There sitting in the middle of the floor was a large, stuffed bear that was around three feet high. Where did you come from, little guy? I said. I didn't think that it had been on my pallet, but I sat it on top to take to the display near the front of the store. As I made the turn towards the main aisle, I passed Sam heading back with an empty pallet. Looks like I found a passenger, 
I said with a smile. Who's that? Sam said. The little guy on top. I said turning and pointing at the bearer. Except the bearer was gone. What passenger? Sam said. Oh, he must have fallen off. I made you look, I said. Sam gave me an odd look and then a half-hearted chuckle. Good one, he said, pulling his empty pallet back towards the stock room. Once he was out of sight, I looked around for the bear, but it was nowhere to be found. I shrugged. Maybe it did just fall off. I pulled my pallet down the aisle towards a central spot where most of my merchandise was displayed. I pulled out my box cutter and sliced the plastic wrap open, and then started the boring task of stocking the shelves. I found myself envious of Greg having earbuds to listen to something. I would have to invest in some of my hard-earned minimum wage money and a set to make the job less boring. As I loaded merchandise on the shelves, I heard a sound like something had fallen off a shelf. At first, I thought that Greg had dropped something, but then it hit me. I hadn't seen Greg's pallet truck in the main aisle. I stepped up and looked up and down the main aisle. Nothing was there. Come to think of it, I hadn't heard Sam come back through with his next load either. Usually, they load the pallets by section, so we worked through the store methodically. I guess Sam's load was the exception. I went back to stocking shelves with an odd feeling in the back of my head. For some reason, I couldn't shake it. I felt very alone tonight. I wondered if somebody was planning a prank on me. I really didn't mind. It helped the night go faster. I eventually finished my pallet and decided to go back to the stock room the long way and find the other guys. If they were planning something, maybe I could catch them in the act. I was halfway around to the front of the store when I saw a pallet that was only half empty. I looked around, but I didn't see anyone. I shrugged it off and went past when I noticed drops of red on the white floor. They led from the pallet down another aisle. I followed the trail only to find a massive puddle of red and Greg laying motionless in the middle of it. For a split second, I froze. Panic gripped me until I remembered who was laying there. This was the guy who set up a costume that made it look like he had been decapitated last Halloween, complete with the fake spraying blood. I remember how angry Amy had been when she had sprayed her. It was the best Halloween ever. Her threatening to fire us was just the icing on the cake. Yeah, have fun cleaning that up. I said as I turned away from the still body and went back to my pallet. I stared it around the mess so I wouldn't spread it any further. He better clean that up, I thought, before it stains the floor. That might actually get him fired if Amy finds out. On my way back to the stock room, I heard footsteps. They weren't loud, but I could tell that somebody was trying to sneak up on me, but they were being quiet about it. I could just envision Greg tiptoeing behind me to jump out of an aisle covered in fake blood and scare me. That would be so awesome if I was watching it happen to somebody else, but I was a little annoyed. Greg's little prank was getting us further behind in our stocking chores, which meant further behind in our cleaning chores. Not to mention that he had made a huge mess and I wasn't cleaning that up. 
even though the front was my assigned section for the night. I had had enough. I stopped my pallet truck and whipped around, only to catch a glimpse of someone dodging behind a rack of clothes. All right, Greg, I said. You got me. I'm so scared out of my mind right now. I looked at the floor and there was a faint line of red footprints, but they had faded like somebody had followed for a while and the red was wearing off with every step they took. Are you kidding me right now? I said. I'm done with this little prank. You're cleaning all those footprints up. I turned and dragged my pallet truck off at exasperated speed. Children, I mumbled angrily. I work with children. I reached the stockroom and kicked the doors open, making them smack against the wall loudly. I don't care. Maybe Greg will get it that I'm pissed and knock this crap off. I drove my pallet truck into the next pallet, but it wouldn't go. I looked and there was already a pallet truck that had picked up this load from the other side. I stepped around to find Sam, laying on the floor in a puddle of red liquid. Come on, you two. Enough of this. We need to get our work done. I reached down and grabbed his arm, but his body didn't move. I pulled his head up out of the puddle and then let it go. It fell with a heavy thunk. A cold wave crept over me as my shaking hand pressed against my neck and waited to feel a pulse. A minute later, I pulled my hand away without feeling anything. I looked at the red liquid on my hand and I recoiled. Out of the corner of my eye, something had caught my attention. It was the stuffed bears sitting on the floor just outside of the pool of blood. There were dark spots on its fur that I hadn't seen before and laying on the floor beside it was a large butcher's knife. My mind refused to believe what I was seeing. I knew that it was impossible, and yet there lay my dead friend in his own blood as proof. Someone had to have staged this. It couldn't be real. As those thoughts chased each other around my mind, the impossible happened. The bear's head moved. It turned and looked right at me and then its eyes began to glow red. It was like somebody had turned on a set of red LEDs, but I knew that was impossible. These bears were just stuffed. We sold them all the time, and I'd never seen one with lights in it. And came the next impossibility. It stood. The bottoms of its feet were round, so it wobbled a little, trying to gain its balance, and then it leaned over and picked up the knife. Its hands were just stitched at the end of the arms to give it the appearance of a palm and fingers. When I picked up the knife, the fur wrapped around the handle and it lifted it. It was like watching somebody pick it up with a sock puppet on their hand. I watched in morbid fascination as this thing looked from the knife to me. My mind was screaming at me to get up, to do anything other than just sit there and wait for this monster with an innocent smiling face to end my life horribly like it had done to my friends. I patted my pockets looking for anything useful to defend myself. All I came up with was a handful of change in my box cutter. I pushed the blade out as far as it would go, one whole inch. As defensive weapons went, it sucked, especially against a murderous, psychotic stuffed bear holding a butcher knife. I can honestly say that's one thought that I never in my life could have anticipated thinking. 
My mind snapped me out of my reverie by reminding me of the seriousness of the situation. I jumped up, slipping and nearly falling on the floor, before gaining my balance and holding the box cutter out in front of me. It paused as if noting the ludicrousness of my actions, and then it charged at me slashing with the knife. I dodged, backpedaling as it charged. Each slash came closer to splicing one of my legs. I reached the end of the hallway and bolted through the stockroom doors, and as I did I felt pain in my right leg, but I didn't stop to examine it. I ran as fast as I could away from the stockroom. It wasn't until I was on the far side of the store that I paused to look at my injury. Blood was pouring from my leg and it had left an easy trail to follow. I looked up at the sign that said, Health and beauty aids with an arrow hopefully pointing the way to the section that was on the other side of the store, a good hundred yards away. I opened a roll of paper towels off the shelf and wrapped my leg in an impromptu bandage until I could get the proper supplies. As I finished, I saw a little brown head a peek around the corner a dozen yards away. In any other circumstance, I might have been almost cute, but in this one I knew that it was deadly. And running to the far side of the store, I unintentionally trapped myself in the corner. I looked around for anything that I could use to defend myself. I grabbed a mop from the shelf and swung it at the bear, knocking it off its feet. Unfortunately, it rolled with it and it was standing again before I had finished my swing. It dove at me, knife outstretched, but I managed to hit it with the mop before it stabbed me. I didn't wait around to celebrate. I ran toward health and beauty aids, and when I got there I quickly found the bandage that I needed and I ran to another part of the store. I was sucking wind and had a stitch in my side and there was no way that I could keep up this pace. Eventually, it would wear me down to the point where I couldn't evade it and then I was done. I needed to hide until I could figure out a plan. The offices seemed the best place but they were a dead end. If I hid there I'd be trapped for sure. There was nowhere else that I could hide that it couldn't get to me except for maybe the freezer. But what would be the use of hiding from the thing and freezing to death in the process of it all? I needed to get out. And Greg was the one who had locked up, but I didn't know if he kept the keys with him or put him back in the office. There was only one way to find out, and it was near the front of the store. I glanced around and noticed the sporting goods section. Checking all around for the stuffed bear of death, I went to sporting goods and picked out a nice baseball bat. Now, at least I would have a sporting chance. I pulled a 10-speed bike off the rack and I mounted it as the furball came around the corner. I took off down the aisle, smacking its head with my bat as I passed. I glanced back to see it jump up and race after me. I shook my head and turned back around just in time to avoid running into a display. I pedaled harder to put some distance between me and it. And Greg's body was coming up fast and I knew that I didn't have much time. I slid the bike to a stop, rolled his body over and searched his pocket for the keys. I started to panic when I came up empty. I searched the other pocket and hit pay dirt at the same time that the knife hit me. I dove away from the attack, my shoulder screaming in pain, and I swung the bat at it. I connected with the knife and I knocked it away. The bear jumped on me and started swinging, 
showering me with lefts and rights of stunning veracity. Surprisingly, there wasn't much impact. It felt like I was being pummeled by pillows. It seemed to sense that I was being hurt and it jumped off me to retrieve the knife. I took the opportunity to hop on my bike and head for the door. Unfortunately, the tire had gotten some blood on it and I only made it a short distance before losing control and tumbling into a soda display. Bottles of soda falling at me hurt, but not as much as the time that I was losing until the monster caught up with me again. I stumbled to my feet, slipping over one last bottle before running toward the door with the monster close behind. I got to the door and I shoved the key on the lock, nearly snapping it off trying to turn it quickly. I prayed the, please help me, I'll never do anything bad again prayer as I struggled to open the doors with the monster bearing down on me, wielding its newly found knife. I slipped through and then turned my attention to closing the doors behind me. They were almost back together when it had arrived. It slashed the knife through the thin opening, just missing my leg as it tried to keep me from locking the door. The key turned most of the way and then it stopped. I struggled to close the door the last fraction of an inch as the monster continued to slash at me. It wasn't working. As long as the knife was keeping the doors from closing all the way, I couldn't lock them. I devised a brilliantly foolish plan. I shoved the doors open, surprising it for an instant, then lashed out, grabbing the handle of the knife and kicking the monster at the same time. It went reeling and I held the knife as it lost its grip. I stared at the knife for a second and then threw it down and closed the doors as the monster jumped up and charged. I was able to get them closed and locked before it could do anything to stop me. I leaned my forehead against the glass as the furball glared up at me, pounding on the door in impotent rage. The glass easily withstood the assault. I knelt down and stared into those glowing red eyes. Even now in relative safety, I wondered what this thing was and why it had done this. It stopped beating on the door long enough to return my gaze. It was hypnotic. I found myself staring blankly into the glowing red. After a minute, I shook myself, unlocked the outside door and stepped out into the cool night air. I took a deep breath, feeling safer than I had but also having my world seem a little more frightening knowing that such things existed and that nobody would believe me. I checked my injuries as I limped over to the employee section of the parking lot which was, of course, the farthest away from the store. As I opened my car, I noticed there were three other cars still parked there. Sam and Greg's cars would be hauled out eventually. I mourned the loss of my friends and wondered if I would be blamed for their deaths. At the moment, I was too tired to care about the future further than going home and going to bed. I didn't even think about calling the cops. One last night's sleep in my bed was all that I wanted. And then my eyes fell on a third car. It was Amy's. She should have been gone hours ago, and yet here she was, sitting in her car. I limped up to see if everything was okay, but the closer I got, I could see that she had her eyes closed, but her mouth was moving. I could hear a soft murmur like she was humming a tune or something. 
I tapped on the window and her eyes shot open so quickly that I took a half step back. She looked at me and her face turned from calm to sheer terror. She started her car and sped out of the parking lot, nearly running over my foot in the process. I thought about her odd behavior as I collapsed into my car and started the engine. I drove in front of the store and looked in through the doors to find the bear laying down in front of them. I stopped the car and got out. I opened both doors and went in to look at the bear. I poked it with my foot and it didn't move. I rolled it over and I looked into its eyes. They were brown. In fact, the only reminder of the horror that this thing had inflicted was the dark spots of its fur. My mind started adding up all the things that led to the impossible. It couldn't be real. But then after everything else that went on tonight, I was pretty low on skepticism. I picked up the knife and I stuck it in my waistband. And then I reached for the bear slowly and cautiously. I lifted it, watching its eyes for any hint of red, and then I carried it out and put it in the trunk of my car. I pulled out my phone and looked up Amy's address and I drove to her house. I parked across the street where I wouldn't be noticed and I got out. I looked up and down the street and saw no one moving. Checking my watch, it was 2.30 in the morning. I opened the trunk and I lifted the bear. Noticing the eyes had just a hint of red. I carried it across the street and up to the front door. By the time that I got there, the eyes had gotten brighter and I could feel it starting to move. I quickly shoved it in between the storm door and the main door. I threw the knife in with it and then shut the storm door, rang the doorbell and ran to my car. I got inside and slunk down just enough to be able to see when the porch light came on. I saw the inside door open, and that's when the screams began. I listened for a few minutes, feeling justified as well as horrified until they had stopped. I stared at the long, straight road ahead, lit up like a runway, and wondered what would happen next. Something in me, something unnerving told me that I would never stop running. Life is scary when you quit your job and literally nobody noticed. Life is scary when you wink at your crush as you pass by your desk only to realize that you have toilet paper stuck to your heel. Life is even scary when it's your first date and you really need to fart. Now we all deal with Sunday scaries, right? That oh crap, stressful, nervous, can't sleep, dread feelings that hit you on Sunday evenings when you think about work or school the next day, or life in general. Unfortunately, you can feel that same pit in your stomach any day of the week. Sunday Scary CBD Gummies were made to defeat the crap life throws at us. These are the perfect CBD gummies for professionals on the grind. Super moms, students, party animals, regretful drunk texters, and everything in between. Now me personally, I don't relax very well. I've never been someone who can just sit down and chill out. I always feel like I need to be doing something. Whether that is work-wise or at home, it's just hard to shut off my brain and chill. While that can be positive in some ways, it also makes me overthink and stress myself out. Sunday Scaries are vitamin-boosted CBD gummies that actually work and they chill me out fast. Look, we all have the right to live scare-free. So whether you need to take the edge off, calm your racing mind, or sleep better, or just chill... 
take two CBD gummies every day to keep the scaries away. Let me save you with my 25% discount. Visit sundayscaries.com and use my promo code MrCreeps for your discount. That's sundayscaries.com promo code MrCreeps for 25% off. I bought a farm in the countryside. It ended up being a nightmare. Written by Evangelotli. I was from the city. I had dreams of escaping the busy day-to-day -day shuffles of it all and always dreamed of living in a small town away from everything. After months of hunting and arguing with realtors, I found some property that I wanted to call my own and start a new life with my son. It was a small farming town in Kansas with a population of around 2,000 people. It was perfect. I bought the land, packed me and my son Elijah's things in a U-Haul, and we made our journey to our new home. Looking back on it, he was more excited about it than I was, and I was pretty excited myself. Me and my sons escaped from everything and to start a fresh new chapter in our new lives. My son was just coming up on nine years old. His new school was close to our new farm and he didn't have many friends in the city, so I knew the move was going to be good for him. His mother, my wife, had passed away when he was at an early age due to an illness, so I was filling in as both parents. He was a pretty happy kid though, always energetic and curious just like his mother was. The farm that I bought was called Crow's Rest. It was a couple of acres filled with sweet corn that was already taller than me. A lot of it was ready to harvest too, and I was excited to get started in our new venture. When I saw the layout online, I could only think, it's perfect. Wasn't too big and not too small either. The two-story house on the property looked like it wasn't in bad shape either too, like somebody had recently fixed it up. The bank said that the last owners had just abandoned it out of nowhere, and I was able to get it for a steal. They said that it's common for people to get overwhelmed by the high maintenance that it takes to run a farm. I knew that I was ready though. After hours of driving across the states, we had finally arrived at our new home. It was about noon when we had arrived at Crow's Rest for the first time. The way the fields and the house brightened in the countryside sunlight, it was beautiful. Elijah could barely contain himself in the passenger seat when we had pulled up, quickly pulling on the door handle yelling and screaming out in excitement. I was happy that he liked it. Again, seeing him happy was worth it all to me. I parked the car and he was already in the fields, running down the walking path, wowing at it all. I also started making my way into the path so I could finally scope it all out in person. One thing the photos didn't show was the number of crows on the property. It was overwhelming. 
They did forewarn me that it wasn't just a name. Crows did seem to gather here a lot, but there were double the amount than what they had showed in the property photos. I didn't let it get to me, though. It was the least of our issues. I knew there would be a couple things that they would try to sneak past us. Dad, look over here. I heard Elijah yell in excitement. I made my way over to him to see what he was so excited about and what he was staring at. It was a scarecrow. I walked up next to Elijah and he was so excited to see it. It was positioned on this tall wooden cross that hung over all the cornfields. Its arms were wrapped around the sides like it was nailed on to look like we were standing there, with its hands grasping the sides on the cross. I remember I thought then that it looked eerie to say the least. On our bright and happy new farm, this scarecrow was like a dark figure in it all, and it wasn't doing the best at its job, as crows rested on the cross with it and on top of its shoulders. As I looked closely at its face, all I saw were stitches of eyes and a mouth with hay sticking out, with a noose and necktie around its neck to hold its potato sack head. I look around its body. It wore handmade clothes with little gaps of hay sticking out through the holes. And the clothes were like farmer's clothes, but they were all darker shades from being dirty and worn. It wore a dark black trench coat that was worn out and ripped up near the bottom. It wore black boots, much like farm workers wear with a toe box that looked like it had seen better days. And lastly, a dark sun hat on its head as the finishing touch. It felt like it didn't fit in with the rest of the farm, but Elijah seemed to love him. Can I name him, Dad? Please, please, he said with excitement. I didn't want to ruin his happiness with how off-putting the thing made me feel. What the heck, I thought. If he enjoyed it, I figured that I would suffer with the eyesore for him. Yeah, go ahead, name him whatever you want. Elijah thought on it for a bit. He looked around the farm and did all the crows and then back at the scarecrow. Tobias... Traitor to all crow kind, he said with such an innocence in his voice. Honestly, giving it a name like that made it seem more or less eerie, weirdly enough. Well, Tobias it is then. With an arm around him, I said. Come on, let's go get things unpacked and check out the new place, I said, directing him back toward the direction of the car. Crows calling all around us as we made our way back. The first couple of weeks were great. I started getting a handle on the whole farm life. Got all the equipment and the tools that we needed. Some minor fix-ups around the house and the barn and even told Elijah soon that we could start picking out some animals. We even made our way into town, getting to know a lot of the locals. Many of them had never even heard of Crow's Rest when I brought it up, which was strange to me with how close to town it was. 
They were excited about the corn that I was promising everyone now. Everything was perfect until it all started happening all at once. I was working on the barn out back, on the opposite side of the crops, away from the house. I was giving it a fresh coat of paint that it desperately needed. When I heard Elijah in the fields, it was like he was talking to someone. Curious about it all, I yelled out to him, Hey, who are you talking to, buddy? It was quiet for a bit and I got worried. So I dropped my brushes and walked over to where the walkway that went through the field. Elijah. I said again and then he popped out from the crops. Looking at me like he did something wrong and he was scared to be in trouble. I tried to see what was the matter. What's up, buddy? Who are you talking to out there? The birds. I said jokingly, but he had a nervous look on his face. I was talking to Tobias, he said, still nervously. I didn't think much of it, so I added to it. Oh yeah, what did Tobias have to say? Is he ready for some new clothes because his aren't looking so pleasant nowadays? I continued joking. As I was whipping some paint that got on my hands on my pants, and started walking back towards the barn side. Tobias doesn't talk much, he just listens. He waved at me so I waved back at him and asked how he was, Elijah said. And waved at him. It must have been the crow's movement and he got it confused. Still, I didn't want him to think that it could move. I don't think Tobias can move, buddy. He is made of straw after all. But Elijah interrupted me before I could finish. He does move, Dad. I've seen it. He yelled out at me. I had no idea what he was talking about or how even to respond back to it. Are you sure about that one, buddy? When did you see such a thing? Or have I been missing something? I said, clearly arguing with my nine-year-old about if a scarecrow had moved or not. Well, he waved at me, and he leaves his cross at night. I see him moving around the field sometimes, and last night he was standing in front of our house. My heart stopped. What did he just say? The other stuff I could let go to was wild imagination, but if he saw somebody standing in front of our house, that's when it started to become alarming for me. Wait... You saw somebody stand in front of our house last night, and you see people moving out in the fields. Why haven't you told me about any of this until now? Elijah looked nervous like he was in trouble for not mentioning it any sooner, but this was concerning. I tried to level with him on it. Hey, you're not in trouble, but things like this, I gotta know about him, buddy. We can't have people running around our property. It's not safe. I tried reassuring him if someone was stalking around the farm at night. I wanted to know about it. I'm glad that he told me now so that I can keep an eye out for it. It's not people though, Dad. It's Tobias. Again, he tries to tell me that it's the scarecrow, which in reality, 
was probably better that he thought that than it being a person. I didn't want to argue with him and upset him, so I dropped it for now. Okay, let's call it a day and get some dinner ready. I put my arm around him, looking around our fields as we started to head back to the house. Looking at Tobias hanging there before heading out of the fields. That night after dinner, I put Elijah to bed and was on my computer working for a bit. I still worked from home remotely even though we were doing the farm now, just to make sure that we had some cash flow still, and I would stay up at night finishing the work pretty late, usually till about midnight. That night I kept thinking about what Elijah had said about people in our fields. It concerned me so. I figured that I would report it to the local authorities in the morning just to have it documented. It was probably just some local kids playing in our fields, if anything. But then I heard something outside. It sounded like slow, trotting footsteps right outside on the other side of the wall that I was sitting. I froze. There really was someone outside. What should I do? I remember thinking, I didn't even own a gun yet. Honestly, I didn't even think that I would need one. I slowly started to get up out of my chair and quickly made it over to the lamp to turn out the lights. I wanted to make the room as dark as possible, so I could maybe sneak a peek out the window to see what it was before it could see me. I heard the slow walking thud of whatever it was still but it wasn't in the vision of the window corner that I was peeking out of yet. I could feel my heart pounding, nervously waiting to see whatever was just freely walking our property, hoping that it was just some animal. And then I heard something very quietly. I heard words. You're not real. Follow my voice. I can help you. It's just a story, lost in the, the dark, all alone. L let me in. It's here. Let me in. It was like broken sentences with long pauses in between them. It said these things with a rustic, whispering-like voice. No doubt about it now. Someone was outside, just freely walking our property. Hearing the voices only made me angrier, honestly. I refused to let somebody just freely walk our property. I finally gathered the courage up, grabbing a baseball bat that I had downstairs, and I started to make it to the front door. I swung it open and ran to the side of the house, facing the fields where I swore that I heard the footsteps. I saw nothing. All I could hear now was the wind blowing and the crops swaying back and forth. I was so confused. I know that I heard something. The night sky was clear so I could see around me, but not well enough to look for people's footprints. I didn't know what to do. And then suddenly, a loud crashing started like something was knocking over plates, photo frames off the walls, and even the chairs. It was inside my house, whatever it is. 
It was inside my house. It had to have snuck through the front door when I came outside. My heart dropped. How could I be so careless? Oh my god, Elijah, I panicked. I quickly bolted back to the front of the house, going through the front door. It looked like somebody had let a rampaging bull into our home. Everything was knocked over and smashed on the ground. Glass was shattered all over the kitchen floor. I was trying to move around to avoid stepping on any glass. But I started hearing that rustic voice again. Only this time, it was yelling violently, screeching more words throughout my house. Down the lane, through the field, I hear crows. Don't open your eyes. I made it past the kitchen, scrabbling to make it to the stairway as fast as I could. Whatever this thing was, it was upstairs, rampaging around. I had to get to Elijah as quickly as I could. It continued to scream things upstairs as it was moving around like it was looking for something. Olivia, hide. It's coming, Olivia. You're not real, monster. Help me open the... Keep running. It won't die. Everything that it was saying didn't make sense, like fragments of sentences. But every word held weight to them. Its voice was terrifying, whatever it was. I knew that it couldn't be human after hearing it scream. I made it to the top of the steps, hearing a blood-curdling scream from Elijah in his room. Daddy, help, it's gonna get me. He said in a tone that had pure terror behind every word. I push off into the hallway. The sides of the walls have holes and claw marks all up the sides like something was pulling its way through the walkway. The door to his room was ripped off and hanging against the wall in the hallway. A loud crash like broken glass came from his room. I finally turned into his room to see no one there. I looked around in a frenzied panic. His room was destroyed like it ran around fighting to grab him. I screamed out for him. Elijah, where are you? I heard him scream again. And I noticed Elijah's window was broken open like something had busted through it and had jumped out. I rushed over and looked out broken glass in the ground below and then I saw him. Something dragging my son from behind into the fields as he continued to scream out for me. Disappearing into the field, only able to see the corn parting from above as they moved deeper into the thick of it. I turned around, making it back downstairs and outside, bolting in the direction of the fields where he was getting dragged off to. Every chance that I could, I screamed out for him more. Elijah's screams echoed through the night as it dragged him through the cornfields. My baby boy, begging for his daddy's help as it pulled him deeper into the fields with its rustic, screeching howl through the night. I was helpless to protect him, unable to do anything for him. I couldn't match its speed. It moved so fluently through the field as the crows above blanketed the skies like they were its servants. 
watching me helplessly trail behind them, squawking and screaming at me as I pushed past the tall corn stalks trying to keep close. Elijah's faint screaming led me toward where it was taking him. I felt so helpless. Tears started to river down my face. I had lost his mother and now I was going to lose my boy. I swore that I would look after him, honey. His screams eventually stopped, but I continued mine hoping to hear back from him and to let him know that daddy was coming. I pushed past out of the field into one of our path clearings in between the crops. There he was. Elijah was lying there. He was cut up, but he looked okay. Relief started to overtake me. I started to run towards him. Once in my embrace, nothing would take him from me. He was lying on his side, slowly getting up like whatever had dropped him and gone deeper into the crops. He looked up at me, crying and terrified. He screamed, Dad, help me, get me out of here, please. He started to stand now. I'm so scared. While tears were streaming down his face, I'm coming, buddy. It's gonna be okay. You're safe now. As I got closer to him, I felt better as I was about to scoop him up in my arms and get him out of there, away from whatever place this was. Right when I got close enough, what looked like eight silhouettes of hands reached out from the crops, grabbing onto him violently before I could, plunging him into the fields, dragging him across the ground back into the thickness of the cornstalk again. He instantly screamed out to me with his surprise shock. Only this time, our eyes were locked together as he got dragged into the crop. Elijah, no! Grab my hand! I screamed out, as all the hopeful feelings I felt being so close to him got ripped again right in front of my eyes. I followed behind him, reaching out to try and grab his hand, but it wasn't enough with every attempt failing, just barely missing his touch. And then the thick of the corn stalk was no more. The area was all laid down like it was a small crop circle. The sky above was nearly blacked out from the swarm of swirling crows overhead, but I could finally see the thing that was taking my son in the bit of moonlight that had peeked through. It was Tobias. The scarecrow was alive. Elijah was right. I felt ineffable fear as I watched this thing. I leaned back as its chest was ripped open, with what I can only describe as shadows coming from it formulating what looked like over 20 silhouettes of hands grabbing and wrapping around Elijah. Some fled around frantically, moving so inhuman, grasping at the air and some grabbing at the ground, while the other half wrapped around Elijah. One of the hands now reached out, covering his mouth as it muffled his screams. I didn't know what to do as it screamed out another rustic saying, Tobias can't move. He's made of, of straw. With tears streaming down his face, Elijah held out his hand toward me. The hand slowly wrapped and warped around him, pulling him into the eternal void of its chest. He slowly disappeared inside the void in its chest until only his arm was hanging out, 
eventually being fully pulled in. After consuming him, all the hands went back inside it. Its chest had started sewing itself back up as it leaned forward and now hunched over. I was in a coma of fear as I watched it. I couldn't move a single muscle in my body. The only noise now was the crows overhead, squawking and flying in a circle above us. The scarecrow twitched every couple of seconds. It slowly began to move again, looking up toward me, staring into my soul with its sewn-together face. It said one final thing that night. It's just a scarecrow. Don't be afraid. There was calm stillness after that, and then it let out another rustic scream that pierced through the night sky, sending all the crows flying in different directions. I couldn't fight this thing. This had to be some embodiment of a living nightmare. Adrenaline pumping through me, I bolt backward, out of the clearing onto the trail heading back to the house. It pushed out of the crops, falling over it, as it chased in the direction that I was running, quickly recovering and crawling after me on all fours like it was some animal. I looked back at it. The silhouettes of all the hands had returned, flailing around its body. They moved like snakes in different directions, frantically around its body. It used them to grab the ground and move faster toward me, screaming its rustic howl as it chased after me. I turned the corner where the barn was, and the final pathway stretched to the front of the house and the truck. It was toying with me, screaming from behind me, still howling its rustic screech into the night sky as it crawled behind me. It's like it wanted me to feel hopeful like I could escape before it took me. Like before when it took, I just kept running. I made it back to the front of the house and headed to my truck. I kept a spare key inside of it and left it unlocked that night, thank God. I jumped in, locked it, and turned it on. The headlights flashed in front of me, but I didn't see anything. I quickly put it in reverse and I wanted to get out of there as fast as possible. My heart was pounding and tears rolled down my face. I was unable to protect him. Feeling like I should have done more, but facing this thing felt like a death wish. I just wanted my son back. As soon as I started to back up, it landed on the front of my truck, smashing the windshield on its landing. Its serpent-like silhouetted arms were now wrapped around the front of the truck. Its face was inches away from mine the cracked windshield being the only barrier between us. It's like it was looking deep inside my soul with its demonic sewn-together eyes. It let out another scream, its mouth pulling down as the stitched sewing was holding it. The scream was so powerful that it looked like it was about to rip the stitching. I quickly put the truck back in drive and I floored it moving towards the cornfield and slamming onto the brakes. The creature flew off the front of the truck from the forest and it fell to the ground. I watched it scramble on the ground and look back up at me. It tilted its head and it started to lunge toward the truck again. But then I floored it, 
running over it with my truck. As I did, I heard its rustic cries ring out into the night. I quickly put my car in reverse and ran back over it. Again, it cried out a high-pitched screech. I started yelling back at it now, feeling like I was hurting it like it hurt me. I repeated this motion over and over again. I wanted to destroy it for ripping everything from me. Finally, I had reversed enough to have my headlights as a spotlight on it as it lay there. I didn't want to leave, but I rolled over it so many times. Eventually, I drove to the sheriff's station as fast as I could to report everything that had happened. When we had returned to the scene, the scarecrow wasn't there. They didn't believe anything that I said about what had happened that night either. I mean, how could you blame them? Everything that had unfolded sounded like a bad dream. They saw the state of the house and asked me again if there were some details that I may have been missing out on. They even questioned me and I'm still under investigation, thinking that I had played some part in this. They themselves said a lot was unexplainable, but the case is still open to this day on my son's disappearance. I still hear its rustic voice mimicking my words in my head at night. I know what I saw and what took him, and it's still out there. Attention shoppers, please hide at the back of the store immediately. Written by Blair Daniels. Attention shoppers, please move to the back of the store immediately. In the back of the store? I whispered to Daniel. Don't they mean the front of the store? To pay for our stuff? It was 8.50pm, 10 minutes until closing time. We had brought our two kids out on this late night Walmart excursion in the hopes of burning off some energy. Instead, they had just thrown tantrums for new Legos and Hot Wheels. It was a disaster. But apparently, the disaster was just beginning. Please move to the back of the store immediately. This is not a drill. I glanced around, but the other shoppers were just as confused as I was. An old lady looked up at the ceiling, scrunching her face. What the heck? A dark-haired woman asked her boyfriend, pushing a cart full of garden supplies. Didn't you hear? An older man said, leaning over his cart of bottled water and canned food. We're in a tornado watch. One touched down in Sourville. A tornado? It was definitely storming outside. I had seen the black clouds roll in from the east earlier, but it didn't look that bad. Do not stay out in the open. I repeat, do not stay out in the open. There was a pause, then an explosion of sound as everyone began to mobilize. Carts rolling, panicked voices, feet slapping on the floor. No, 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 this can't be happening. 
When I hurried down the toy aisle, Tucker in my arms, Daniel and Jackson following me. Three zigzaggy turns and then we were in the electronics area. I glanced at the TVs on the wall and pictured the four of us crushed underneath them. Stay away from windows and doors. The voice continued on the loudspeaker. And do not attempt to exit the store. Is this... is it safe here? Daniel shook his head. Big open areas aren't good. I'm going to go check in back, see if there's a break room or something. You stay here, okay? I nodded. Arms shaking, I sat down on the ground between two shelves of video games. Tucker sucked on a bottle in my arms while Jackson began to giggle. Is the tornado going to hit the store and everything will fly around real fast? He asked with a big stupid grin on his face. I don't know. A tornado. A real life tornado. Like you see in the movies plowing through our town. It was so unfathomable. We were New York natives, transplanted here to Indiana only six months ago. I had never been in a tornado watch my entire life. Daniel jogged back into view. Everything's locked up, he said as he joined me on the floor. But listen, Fairview is a big town. The chances that it'll hit this Walmart, I think we'll be okay. I never should have brought us here. Hey, you didn't know. None of us did. He wrapped his arm around me. They should have warned us. Like an emergency alert on our phones or something. Maybe a tornado siren. The voice overhead rang out again through the store. Do not stay out in the open. Do not make yourself visible. That includes security cameras. Please move to a spot that is not visible to any cameras. I frowned. What does that have to do with tornadoes? A feeling of unease in the pit of my stomach. I glanced up and saw several black globes descending from the ceiling, hiding the cameras within. I guess we should listen to them and get out of sight, I whispered. I grabbed Jackson's hand, Daniel picked up Tucker, and we jogged out into the center aisle. The store was an eerie sight. Abandoned shopping carts askew in the aisle, full of everything from pies to batteries to plans. Footsteps echoed around the store from people unseen as they found their new hiding places. We dodged a shopping cart full of soda ran through kitchenwares and then stopped in the Easter decoration aisle. There is a camera in the central corridor, but as long as we stayed in the middle of the Easter aisle, we would be invisible. The four of us crouched on the floor, next to some demented-looking Easter bunnies. I'm hungry, Jackson whined. Shh, mommy... I grabbed a bag of colorful chocolate eggs and I ripped it open. Here, candy, happy, I whispered, 
thrusting them into his hands. And then I leaned back against the metal shelves, panting. But I didn't have long to rest. A mechanical whine overhead, and then the voice came through the speakers again. Keep away from aisles with food. If you have food with you, leave it and move to a new hiding place. If you have any open wounds, cover them with clothing. What the? That had nothing to do with keeping safe in a tornado. We should make a run for it. Daniel whispered to me, starting to stand. But the tornado... I don't think there is a tornado. I mean, listen, do you hear any wind? I listened, but all I heard was silence. No howling wind, no shaking ground. No projectiles clanging against the metal roof. Maybe, maybe it's still coming. I know what they're saying doesn't make sense, but to go outside. We need to get out of here, now. He grabbed at Jackson's hand as he held Tucker in his arms. Come on. Daniel, I don't think that's a good idea, I whispered. But the next words from the intercom changed my mind. Assume a fetal position and place your hands on your head. Close your eyes and do not open them for any reason. Let's go. We broke into a sprint and ran down the central aisle. We didn't care about the cameras. The front door appeared in front of us, a little black rectangle looming in the distance. And as we got closer, I saw that Daniel was right. There was a tree at the border of the parking lot, underneath the street lamp. It was perfectly still. We continued running past the clothing area, past these snacks lined up at the checkout lines. I ran towards these sliding glass doors as fast as my legs would carry me. Almost there. Almost there. Almost. The doors didn't open. No. No, 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 no. Daniel slammed his body against the door. It rattled underneath him. I tried to squeeze my fingers into the gap between them to try and pull them apart. They didn't budge. They... They locked us in, I whispered. I want to go home, Jackson said. Tucker was beginning to fuss too, making little noises like he was about to start full-on wailing. I turned around, and that's when I saw him. A Walmart employee. He was sitting on the ground at the end of one of the checkout aisles, facing away from us wearing the familiar blue vest with a golden starburst. Hey, let us out. He didn't reply. Did you hear me? I don't care if there's a freaking tornado. Unlock the door and let us out. Again, he said nothing. But in the silence, I could hear something. A wet, smacking sound. I stared at the man, slightly hunched over, still facing away from me. Was he eating something? The speaker overhead crackled to life. Attention, please do not talk to any Walmart employees. 
My blood ran cold. The smacking sound stopped. And then slowly, the man began to stand. He placed his palms on the conveyor belt and pushed up. And I could see that they were stained with blood. I backed away, but my legs felt like they were moving through a vat of honey. No, no, no. The fingers locked around my arm and yanked. Come on, Daniel shouted. I sprinted after him deeper into the store. Tucker stared at me over his shoulder, and Jackson ran as fast as his little feet would take him. I was vaguely aware of the slapping sound behind me, but I didn't dare look back. Daniel ran into the clothing area and I swayed, dodging circular racks of t-shirts and wooden displays of baby clothes. He skidded to a stop and ducked into the dressing room area. In here, he whispered, motioning at one of the rooms. We piled inside and we locked the door. Daddy, Jackson started. You listen to me very carefully, I said crouching to his level. You have to be absolutely silent. Do not say a word, okay? Jackson looked at me and then Daniel, and then he nodded and sat down on the floor. I'm going to try to call 911, Daniel whispered, transferring Tucker to me and pulling out his phone. He tapped at the screen and then frowned. We don't, we don't seem to have any service. I don't. A thump. I grabbed Jackson and pulled him away from the door. The four of us huddled in the corner. I held my breath. Thump. Under the gap of the dressing room door, men's feet in black shoes. They slowly took a step forward deeper into the dressing room. Don't move, I whispered, holding Jackson. The man took another step. Don't make another sound. Don't move. Don't. Tucker let out a soft cry. The man stopped. His feet turned, pointing at us. No, no. Tucker let out another cry, louder this time. My nails dug into Daniel's hand. No. A hand appeared. It slowly pressed against the floor and stained with blood. And then his knees appeared as he lowered himself down to the gap. No. Could he fit under? The gap wasn't small. It was like a stall door to a bathroom. If he flattened himself against the floor, there's a chance that he could fit under. I watched in horror as his stomach came into view. His blue Walmart vest as he lowered his body to the floor. And then he pushed his arm under the gap and blindly swept it across the floor. As if feeling for us. This is it. We're going to die. And then he lowered his head. His face. Oh God, there was something horribly wrong with his face. He smiled up at us with a smile that was impossibly wide showing off blood-stained teeth. His skin was so pale that it was nearly blue, and his eyes, and they were milky white without pupils or irises. 
I opened my mouth to scream. Attention, choppers. The voice began overhead. Please make your way to the front of the store and make your final purchases. We will be closing in ten minutes. What? And then, before I could react, something unseen jerked the man out of view. A strange dragging sound followed, as if somebody was dragging his body out of the dressing room area. I stared at the door, shaking, as Tucker's cries rang in my ears. But he didn't come back. And within ten minutes, the usual hubbub of Walmart had returned. Voices, footsteps, shopping car wheels rolling along the floor. Shaking, I finally got up and I unlocked the door. The store looked completely normal. People were lined up at the cash registers, placing their goods on the conveyor belts. Employees were scanning tags and printing receipts. People walked towards the glass doors and when they did, they slid open. As we slowly walked towards the exit, I spotted the older man who had warned us about the tornado earlier. What? What was that? I asked, unable to keep my voice from shaking. He shrugged. I guess the tornado missed us. What a miracle, huh? Giving us a smile, he disappeared out the glass doors and into the night. Can't sleep, waking up screaming. It might be the nightmares or maybe you're just on the wrong mattress. Ghost Bed is here to change that. For the last 20 plus years, the team behind Ghostbed has been designing comfortable mattresses that are built to last. And they are the experts when it comes to pairing customers with the right mattress, based on things like sleeping position, lifestyle, and more. Go to ghostbed.com today and take their online quiz to get your personalized recommendation within minutes. Want to talk to a real person instead? Ghostbed sleep experts can dive deeper into your needs and help you find the right match one-on-one. Orders ship free and fast and you also get a 101 night sleep trial to make sure your mattress is the right fit for you. Also, if you're interested in bundling products, they're currently 50% off on site. Otherwise, use my specific code, Mr. Creeps, for 40% off site-wide. Again, visit ghostbed.com creepscast and use promo code Mr. Creeps at checkout to get 40% off mattresses plus get two luxury pillows and other freebies. That's www.ghostbed.com creepscast with promo code Mr. Creeps. I was an Alaskan bush pilot. This is what I saw, written by Dark Knight Tales. I've been flying as a bush pilot in Alaska for the last five years or so. It's a pretty good job for the right sort of person. It goes without saying that you need to be a pretty handy pilot, specifically of small and light aircraft, but beyond that, it also requires a special sort of personality. 
Folks who thrive on social interaction and the safe comfort of civilization need not apply. Being self-sufficient and mechanically inclined are pretty much prerequisites for those who want to stay on this side of the grave. And I would say that it's fairly important that you have a level head and don't have a tendency to panic in stressful situations. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not talking about thrill seekers or those who don't have a healthy respect for death. Those folks don't tend to last too long in this business. They either end up as another in the long list of missing planes that gains new entries each year, or else they quickly learn that their employers aren't willing to risk their expensive equipment and cargo with somebody that isn't going to take every possible precaution to ensure the safe return of said aircraft. I'm just saying that you have to be able to set your fears aside when you're in the thick of it. If something goes wrong, you need a clear head. You can always puke your pass out once you're safely on the ground again. I've had my fair share of cold sweats, standing on a frozen runway after a close brush with the afterlife. But for me, I'm a transplant from South Florida, where I spend much of my time doing puddle jump charters in a small twin-engined beachcraft. Interesting, sure. The dealing with people has never been my strong suit. I'm not exactly the sociable sort, even less though when I'm trying to fly. When you've got four passengers sitting a couple of feet behind you and expecting you to play tour guide on their two-hour flight across the Everglades, it gets old pretty quick. Or at least it did for me. I guess it works for some people. Anyway, a flying buddy of mine that I hadn't talked to in years called me up out of the blue one day with a lead on an open seat at the Bush Charter Company that he had been working with out of Fairbanks. One of their pilots had decided that the harsh Alaskan winters and isolation were more than his nerves could take. So he gave his notice, packed up his bags, and he headed back south. Truth be told, I had never really considered looking for a gig in Alaska. I always had the impression that most of the bush pilots working there had been flying stole. That's a short takeoff and landing in the backcountry since they were old enough to walk. Nick assured me that there were plenty of respected pilots up there who had originated from the lower 48. When he had floated the salary numbers in my direction, I didn't take too long thinking about it before I had made my decision. And two weeks later, I found myself standing in the offices of my new employer. That was a while back and although it took a bit to become accustomed to the type of bush flying that this place demands, I settled in pretty quick and was soon assigned my permanent ride. A De Halavand DHC-2 Beaver. Maggie after a yellow lap I had as a kid. And man what a beauty she is. Solar yellow with black piping and looking just as pristine as when she rolled off the assembly line in 1967. The beaver is probably the best bush plane to ever grace the skies. And I'm fairly certain that Maggie saved my butt from a stupid mistake on more than one occasion. Anyway, I'm getting off track. So at the time this story took place, I had been flying for Viking bush charters for probably a year or so. I had just returned from dropping supplies to a ranger station up near Denali when I got a call over the radio from my dispatcher. 
I was in the hangar at the time getting a hot cup of coffee while the mechanic was refitting Maggie with her Tundra tires, swapping out the floats that I would need for the supply drop off earlier. The big, almost cartoonish tires were perfect for most of the areas that I tended to fly in, and it made for a soft, if energetic, landing. I was looking forward to getting back to my trailer and relaxing, maybe watching a movie before dozing off. But the crackle from my two-way told me that my exciting plan for the night might not play out. Go for Hooper. I answered, taking a sip of the steaming coffee. The voice of Buck Jacobs replied through the light static. Hey Hoop, what's your status? Uh, Mike is working on Maggie's gear and I was getting ready to head home for the evening. What's up? There was a moment's pause before Buck replied. Uh, sorry, Hoop, but I need you to do a turnaround. We just got a call from a ranger station up near Birch Creek. They've got somebody up there that had a run-in with a brown bear and is pretty banged up. I cursed under my breath, but there wasn't any real venom in it. I learned a while ago that up here, everybody helps when it's needed. You never know when it's going to be you on the other side of that call. Can't they fly them out themselves? I asked, but I was already walking around my plane to where Mike Nichols was working. Ah, negative, Hoop. It's an emergency and we're the nearest phone call. I would send Jackie, but she's not back from a run-up to Minto yet. He replied. Okay, Buck, no worries. I'll help Mike get Maggie refitted and prepped. I should be wheels up in an hour or so, I said. Thanks, Hoop. I'll have the details in your hands in 15. Dispatch out. And there went my relaxing evening. True to my prediction, I was taxiing down the company's private runway an hour later. The vibration from the big radial engine creating a gentle thrumming that filled the interior. It was just before 3pm when I was airborne, and being that it was late February, I knew that I had just over two hours before sunset. So long as everything went smoothly, that should have been enough time to reach the ranger station, load up the passenger, and get back to Fairbanks before dark. The weather was pretty good when I had left. It was pushing plus 10 degrees and although the reports were calling for snow that evening, the sky was clear as I rose above the trees and turned northeast towards the ranger station. Everything was going smoothly for the first 30 minutes, before those distant storm clouds that I had been watching on the horizon suddenly seemed to take a keen interest in me and headed my way much faster than I would have liked. To make matters worse, I had started to notice a subtle bumping sensation intermittently coming from the engine. I wasn't sure if I was starting to lose one of the nine cylinders or if it was something else, but it was definitely something that I was keeping my eye on. If I had been on a regular supply run, I would have turned around and headed back to Fairbanks right there and then to get it checked out. But I was acutely aware that anyone who had a tangle with a grizzly was probably in a bad way. My flight out to the Birch Creek Ranger Station may very well mean the difference between life and death for this unfortunate soul. After another 15 minutes, I knew that I wasn't going to make it to the Ranger Station. The storm clouds that had been approaching had now overtaken me and covered the afternoon sky in a thick blanket of gray and black ugliness. I could see the periodic flashes of lightning within them, and the air had grown turbulent. 
To make matters worse, that engine mist that I had been feeling had become more frequent and severe, and I was sure that I now had multiple cylinders that were beginning to fail. I grabbed the VHF and radioed back to dispatch. Viking ground, Viking 320 Foxtrot. Buck's voice crackled a thrill a moment later. Viking 320 Foxtrot, Viking ground, reading you hoop. Hey Buck, I've run into some nasty weather here and have started picking up some engine issues. I'm afraid that I'm going to have to abort and head for home. Please advise Birch Creek Ranger Station of my situation. Buck didn't argue. He knew that I wouldn't abort a pickup like this for a few snow flurries. Roger that, Hoop. Looking at the weather radar right now. Advise you make your heading 185 degrees and drop to 900 to avoid the worst of it. Roger that. Viking 320 Foxtrot out, I said, banking the plane to the right and starting my return to the airfield. The storm front which had overtaken me from my left had also descended with its approach, bringing the clouds low and thick. I pushed forward on the yoke, starting my descent to Buck's recommendation and hoping that there weren't any errant mountains in my way. Five minutes later, I was fighting with the wind for control of Maggie and was now nearly in a whiteout condition, relying almost exclusively on my instruments for navigation. The turbulence was getting severe, tossing the workhorse bush plane around like a kite in a gale. More than once, the groaning of the wing struts made me wonder if the storm was pushing Maggie past her comfort zone and testing the limits of her airframe. I descended a bit more, dropping to 500 feet, aware that in these low visibility conditions, I was pushing my luck with the terrain. The air was a little cleaner down here though, and the visibility a little better, but I was still being thrown around and I knew that I would have to climb again pretty soon in order to clear the ridgeline I knew that was not too far ahead of me. An unnerving metallic popping noise from above my head drew my attention momentarily. And in that moment, I made the decision that I had to find a place to set her down and wait out the storm as best I could. The trees below me were becoming very visible now at this altitude. Their peaks piercing the low cloud cover and heavy snowfall like ghostly claws, reaching up from the depths of some abyssal grave to drag me down. The biggest issue that I faced now was finding a suitable place to land safely. I knew that the winds had pushed me off course and I wasn't as familiar with this area as most others I spent time flying over. I wasn't aware of any landing strips nearby and I was just praying to find a large enough clearing to accommodate her. Another engine miss. Worse this time. This time, the strained drone of the radio cut out completely for a half second before resuming. And for the first time since I had come to Alaska... I realized that there was a very real possibility that I might not make it home. If the engine died completely in what was now a strong tailwind, my airspeed would quickly drop until one of my wings stalled. When that happened, the beaver would wing over and I would tumble to the ground in an irrecoverable death spiral. It might be months or years before my wreckage was discovered out here in the wilderness. I considered trying to turn into the wind to keep as much airspeed as possible in that event. But it was gusting bad enough that I was afraid to attempt it, especially with a limping engine. 
I was getting ready to radio dispatch on that buckno of my worsening situation when the thick of clouds parted ahead of me briefly. In an instant, I thought that I had won the most important lottery of my life. Directly ahead of me, a quarter mile out, was the unmistakable rectangular shape of a small airstrip. It was covered in snow that I hoped wasn't too deep, but it was my salvation, a lifeline that I wouldn't dare refuse. I quickly adjusted my approach and set my flaps as I made for it. Another strong gust fought me, trying to throw me out of alignment with the narrow clearing, but I fought back with throttle and rudder as best as I could. As I watched the altimeter steadily wind down like an analog clock going backwards in time, I reached out for the radio handset to advise Buck of my situation and estimated location, but the next gust almost tore the yoke out of my left hand, and I snapped instantly back to a white-knuckled, two-handed grip. My altitude dropped to 200 feet. I was going too fast, I knew. At this speed, I would either overshoot the strip altogether and slam into the dense tree line, or hit the ground so hard that I would shear off my gear and probably break my back in the process. I couldn't slow down any further though, or I would risk dropping below stall speed in the strong tailwind, and that would mean a quick trip to the frozen ground. A hundred feet. Maggie's wings dip below the tree line now as I enter the long and narrow swath of the landing strip. The tall cedars and spruces towering around me forebodingly. The tailwind dropped, obstructed by the great barrier of trees behind me, and I took a breath to thank whatever powers that be for this unexpected bit of good fortune. Fifty feet. With the flaps set to full, I bled off airspeed quickly and my reflexes took over, transitioning from my near-ballistic flight to a more controlled approach, one the beaver was much more suited to. Ten feet. I pulled back on the yoke and momentarily throttled up as my gear kissed the top of the snow, flaring the bush plane and setting down a bit harder than I would have liked, the jarring of the impact thankfully cushioned by the tundra tires. I rolled out for another twenty feet or so before Maggie came to a halt in the knee-deep snow, thankful that I had it nosed over. I killed the engine and rested my forehead on the yoke, trying to get my heart rate under control. I didn't think the shaking in my hands had anything to do with the temperature. The daylight was fading, but it was still light enough to allow me a good view of my surroundings through Maggie's windows. I was in the middle of what I guessed was the landing strip, since the tree lines on either side seemed to be about the same distance from me. Those trees were even more imposing down here in the ground. They rose like towering walls on either side and the woodlands beyond held deep shadows that were only accentuated by the heavy snowfall that continued to obscure my vision. I reached for the radio and I keyed the mic, hailing dispatch. I didn't have much faith that the VHF would be able to penetrate the trees and the mountain ridge that lay between me and Buck, but it was worth a shot. After a long moment of hissing static, I tried again, but with the same results. It was doubtful that I would be able to get a signal through until the storm had passed, and even then, I didn't think it likely unless I could get Maggie airborne again. With only a moment's deliberation and a resigned sigh, 
I retrieved the emergency locator beacon from my jacket pockets and deactivated it. The unit would broadcast a distress signal along with my location to the monitoring service. I knew that it would be a day at least before any help arrived, but the sooner that I sent the call, the sooner they would be able to get to me. I took another look out through the fused lodge windows. If there was a landing strip, that meant a possibility that somebody was nearby. I didn't think there was a ranger station out here, but there were enough hunting cabins and homesteads that there was a decent chance that I could find shelter. The interior of the plane was still warm, but I knew that wouldn't last very long in this weather, especially with night approaching. I unbuckled myself and climbed back through the seats into the cargo area, where I pulled on my heavy coat and shouldered my emergency pack. Grabbing my rifle from its rack behind the pilot seat, I unlatched and swung open the cargo door. A blast of arctic wind hit me in the face, and I squinted my eyes against it, quickly pulling my goggles out of my hood up before it dropped into the snow-covered runway. I pulled the cargo door closed and trudged around the rear of the plane, standing in the furrows left by Maggie's wheels and turning in a slow circle as I tried to discern any indication of human presence. Despite the howling wind that pulled at my coat and hood, I caught the unmistakable scent of wood smoke and breathed a small sigh of relief. At least I know I wasn't alone out here. As I scanned my surroundings, my eyes alighted on what looked like a small utility shed on the western edge of the clearing, and I moved with as much speed as the deep snow would allow in its direction. To the left of it, I spied a waist-high railing marking a walkway that led into the shadowed tree line and quickened my pace. I followed the trail, now feeling what were likely wooden planks beneath my boots. Once in the trees, the brutal wind of the storm had lessened and the snow drifted down from the canopy in slow, dancing swirls before settling on the ground with a muted hiss that sounded like the forest around me was quietly exhaling. Between the dim light of the coming dusk and the snowfall, I couldn't see much beyond the trees nearest me, and I relied on the handrail to guide my travel. It was another few minutes of plodding through the snow-covered walkway before I finally saw the building. At first, I thought it was a hunting cabin, solitary amidst the endless sea of trees. As I drew closer, though, I could see that it was much larger than I first thought low and wide and of modern construction. Some sort of sign stood between two timber uprights just off the path, its face covered in snow and ice. I paused to brush it clear, somewhat surprised to see the blue background and logo of the Alaskan Division of Agriculture. White lettering beneath it indicated that this was the White River Basin Agricultural Research Center. I had never heard of the ADOA having wilderness research centers, but I supposed it wasn't too far-fetched. Regardless, this was even better news than I had expected. This meant that I wasn't approaching some isolated hunting cabin, but instead a government post, and that meant my chances of survival and rescue had just increased significantly. I gave a hoot of joy and patted the sign as if it were an old friend who had just delivered some good news, and I jogged the remaining handful of yards to the front door of the building. 
Just as I had approached, however, the door abruptly swung open, spilling yellow light across the white snow. A man stepped out from the doorway and shouldered a shotgun, leveling it right at my head, his eyes wide and wild as they stared down the barrel at me. Stop right there, he shouted at me, his words coming in angry puffs of steam in the frigid air. Don't come any closer. Whoa, hold on a minute, chief, just wait. I answered, my hands going up reflexively. I'm not here to cause any trouble. He motioned with the shotgun. Drop the rifle, nice and slow. I'm warning you, I won't hesitate to blow you in half if you make any sudden movements. Holding my free hand up to show that I wasn't a threat, I bent slowly and placed the rifle on the ground before rising again. What's going on? Who are you? What are you doing here? He demanded. I could see the muzzle of the shotgun trembling and worried that he might end up shooting me by mistake just due to nerves. He was wearing what looked like a government-issued coat with an embroidered patch on the shoulder and he had a week's growth of beard. Easy, boss, I said, trying to keep my voice level and calm. My name's Hooper. I'm a pilot for Viking Bush Charters out of Fairbanks. My plane was forced down in the storm and I was lucky to find your landing strip before she ended up in the trees. I was starting to wonder if lucky was the right word anymore. He looked at me after a long minute, his eyes scanning me over and then motioned at me again with the shotgun. Take off your goggles. Let me see your eyes, he said. That caught me off guard. But I nodded and slowly moved my hands to remove the tinted goggles, careful to not make any sudden moves. He leaned towards me, eyes locked hard on mine searchingly. Then, seemingly satisfied, he abruptly lowered his gun and nodded, as if reassuring himself. He jerked his head back toward the doorway, and his entire demeanor had suddenly changed. Well, Hooper, come on inside and bring your rifle it's too cold out here. With that, he turned and walked back inside, resting the shotgun against the interior wall next to the door as he did so. Now even more confused than before, I reached down and picked up my rifle from the snowy ground, my gaze never leaving the man. As inconspicuously as I could, I worked the lever at chambering a cartridge and I followed him in. It was such a bizarre interaction. I wanted to make sure he wouldn't surprise me again if he decided to change his mind. When I entered the building and closed the door behind me, I found myself in what looked like a wood-paneled visitor's room, with a couch on one wall and a blazing fireplace, fronted by a couple of chairs on the opposite. The man had moved over to a small table near the fireplace, pouring a glass of whiskey from a half-empty bottle and now seemingly completely disinterested in my presence. I frowned and glanced around the room. Aside from these sparse furnishings, there was a closed door across from the one that I had entered through, labeled with a restricted access sign. I followed him as he pushed the door open and proceeded along a narrow, tiled corridor lit by harsh, fluorescent lights. It felt out of place, more like I was walking through the halls of a hospital than an ADOA building in the middle of the bush. He looked over his shoulder and took note of my surprise. Yeah, not quite like the ranger stations, is it? 
he said, stopping in front of a heavy-looking door at the end of the corridor and keying a quick code into the panel above the handle. I heard a soft click and he pushed it open, exposing a darkened room beyond. He entered and the lights flickered on as I followed. The room that we now stood in was larger than the previous one, probably 30 feet across and smelling of antiseptic and chemicals. Several rows of stainless steel tables were neatly arranged within, occupied with various unfamiliar laboratory paraphernalia and equipment. In addition to these lab stations, there also appeared to be examination tables along the far wall, a few of which had white cloths covering unidentifiable shapes. I suppressed a shudder. It reminded me of a morgue, though the concealed objects were too small to be human bodies. What is this place? I asked, my eyes taking it all in. Just like the sign outside says, Hooper. This is the White River Basin Agricultural Research Center. He replied, leaning against one of the tables. It was set up to monitor large mammal wildlife migrations with potential correlation to climate change. Huh, I replied evenly. Sounds interesting, he grinned. No, it doesn't, not even to me and I work here. Would you believe that a week ago there were 25 researchers living and working here? 25, Hooper. This place was hopping, man. An uncomfortable tingle ran down my spine, and I shifted the rifle in my hand, the weight of it reassuring as it hung at my side. If Tate had noticed, he didn't mention it. What happened last week? I asked carefully. When he turned back to me, the smirk was gone from his face and his eyes had widened. Whatever was in his thoughts now, he didn't find it amusing anymore. That's when they came, Hooper. They. The shadows, man. The shadows. They came from the storm. You remember the storm, don't you? the storm. I knew what he was talking about, of course. I don't think anyone around here would forget it anytime soon. It was a little more than a week ago when that freak blizzard came out of nowhere, unpredicted and unexplained. What had started out as a cloudless and unseasonably warm morning ended up burying us in nearly two feet of snow by the time that it was over. The sky had shifted from bright and sunny to a bruised and angry granite color within the span of an hour. Clouds rolling so low and heavy that it seemed like you could almost reach up and touch them. Our weather station at the field was clocking sustained wind speeds of 50 knots, with gusts up to 85, and we were in total whiteout condition for the next 14 hours. We were all trapped in the hangar huddled around the kerosene jet heaters, listening to the wind as it tried to tear apart the heavy steel structure around us. By the time the next day came, it was just gone, replaced by the clear blue skies of the previous morning. Nobody had any good explanation for it, but I heard a couple of the old-timers who ran the machine shop whispering about it in the back. I couldn't make out much of what they were saying. I didn't much care if I'm being honest but they sounded worried. At the time, I thought it was a little strange that the weather would unnerve them as much as it seemed to. These guys were both full-blood Inuit and as hard as nails. It was almost comical to think that 
they would be worried about a surprise blizzard. No, now that I think back on it, it almost seemed like they were more worried about something in the blizzard. I can't be sure since they kept switching in and out of English, but that's the impression that I got anyway. The shadows, I asked him confused. His eyes had drifted off into the distance for a moment, lost in his own world. And the next moment, he snapped them back to me eagerly, like he had just had an epiphany. And he said, Yeah, do you want to see one? Do I want to see a shadow? What are you talking about, man? You're not making any sense. But he was already on the move again, walking across the room to another door. He beckoned me to follow, entered his coat, and he pushed it open. Wordlessly, I followed, unease whispering in my ear. He led me along another hallway, glancing over his shoulder periodically like he was making sure that I was still there. I caught one. The other researchers didn't think that it was possible, but I knew that I could. He said, and it almost sounded like he was talking to himself more than to me. He stopped at a door marked OR2, pushed it open, and walked inside. I trailed behind him hesitantly, feeling apprehensive about this whole thing. A slow feeling of dread had been worming its way through my subconscious, and I wasn't so sure that I wanted to follow this man much further. The whole situation felt wrong, and I was starting to think that Mr. Morgan Tate was more than a little unhinged. Where were the other researchers that he had mentioned? I had questioned whether they even existed at all, if not for the size of the place and the coats hanging by the door in the reception area. The room that I stepped into now was much smaller than the others and had the feel of some sort of control room. The wall to my left held narrow lockers and a rack of coat hooks occupied by several white lab coats. To my right was a console lined with monitors and keyboards and above that, the entire upper portion of the wall appeared to be an observation window looking into a darkened room. On the opposite wall was one of those airlock doors that you see in isolation areas of hospitals, stainless steel and with a small circular window in its smooth surface. The computer monitors were on and were displaying various graphs and streams of data. Tate sat on one of the chairs at the console and started typing into his keyboard. They're incredible, he said absently, like nothing we've seen before. I moved closer to the observation window, straining to make out anything in the darkened room beyond. All I saw was the blackness, though. You have something in there, I asked, suddenly feeling very uncomfortable. I wasn't sure that I wanted to see whatever this nutcase wanted to show me. Why are the lights off? He glanced away from the console for a second and turned an unreadable grin on me. They're not. With that, he stood and leaned forward, pounding the heel of his fist against the window with a resounding shudder, making me jump in surprise. I didn't quite understand what I saw next. The darkness that had obscured my view suddenly swept aside, like somebody snatching a curtain violently from across a window and out of sight. But that wasn't quite right either though. It was more fluid in its abrupt motion, almost like smoke being pulled away by an incredibly powerful and unseen exhaust fan. 
A muted screeching sound reached my ears, sounding eerily like a poor imitation of a bird of prey. I assumed that the observation room was soundproof for near enough, and wondered exactly how loud that wailing must have been for it to reach my ears. I leaned closer to the window, peering upward and to the left, where the darkness had disappeared to, but I couldn't see any vestige of it. And then I looked to the rest of the room and drew an involuntary gasp at the horror that I saw. A dozen corpses lay strewn about the otherwise barren interior of the room. But they weren't bodies anymore, not really. They were nothing more than skeletons now, still dressed in the clothes that they had worn when they fell. Most were intact, though a few had scattered where they struck the tiled floor. Their bones were stripped of all remnants of flesh and were bleach white. What the heck? I said in revulsion and shock, barely above a whisper. Tate nodded excitedly. It's incredible, isn't it? The others left, but I was able to lure two of them into the holding room and trap them here. I stepped back, feeling my stomach turned and turned an incredulous gaze upon the man. But the bodies... He nodded again almost eagerly. That's how I lured them. Most of the remaining researchers fled in here to hide. You see, it needs to eat, to hunt. It can't survive without sustenance. No more than you or I. There were two in the beginning, but after the food ran out, this one turned on the other, and now there's only one. The food? You mean those people? I tightened the grip on my rifle, then took a step backwards to put a little space between the two of us. When the shadows came in the darkness of the storm, a few of them were able to slip into the building before we realized what was happening. Half of the researchers were taken that night in their sleep. You see, they hide and wait for the right moment. They avoid the light. I think it weakens them. But in the darkness, he trailed off, and I saw an uncomfortable smile grow across his lips. Almost of admiration, it seemed. In the darkness, that's where they live. That's where they thrive and where they reign. I took another step backwards, my free hand reaching for the door handle behind me and opening it, pushing it with my foot. You're crazy, I said, bringing the rifle up in line with his chest. If he even noticed it, he gave no indication. His eyes had taken on that maniacal glint again, and he stood, giving a small nod that I thought was meant to reassure me. There's no more for it to eat, Hooper. It's been days since I've been able to feed it. He took a slow step towards me and I matched it with a retreating one of my own. He smiled and continued as if explaining to a child. I have only myself left to offer, but that's not enough. Don't you understand? This isn't just a thing, not just an animal. It's far beyond our understanding. Far beyond our own primitive evolution. It's perfect. His eyes flicked away from me for a moment to an illuminated red button on the console nearby, and his hand drifted over to it. Don't, I shouted, bringing the rifle up to my shoulder. Don't do it, Tate. There's nothing to be afraid of, he said, an obscene caricature of gentleness filling his voice. It's quick. His hand hovered over the button. 
I will shoot you, Tate. Don't make me do it. From where I stood, I could see another one of those airlock doors through the observation window, and to my horror, a swirling mass of impenetrable blackness massed at the threshold. I could almost feel its anticipation. This wasn't the first time that it had been fed. It knew what was coming. In that instant, when my eyes had flicked away from him, Tade stabbed at the button. With a curse, I squeezed the trigger on the rifle at the same instant, but it was too late. The deafening rapport in the small room was immense, but even as the round tore through the man's chest, he had already pressed it. I watched in horror as the twin airlock doors began to retract, and without another thought, I turned and fled as fast as my wary muscles could carry me. Thankfully, the codes required to open the doors weren't needed to exit them, and I flew down the hall and through the research room. As I passed it and threw open the door to the reception area, I heard that wailing screech again from somewhere behind me, haunting and otherworldly, echoing through the empty facility much louder than before. Then, I heard another sound, this one the agonized screaming of Morgan Tate. I only gave it the briefest of thoughts as I jerked open the outer door and fled into the snowstorm. I could only hope that feeding time would give me enough of a window to make it back to Maggie. The air had darkened even more with the coming of dusk and it had grown colder. Thankfully, the storm seemed to have lost much of its fury, the front having now passed by and leaving me in its relatively calm wake. I ran along the path, just enough light remaining of the day to follow the tracks that I had made on my way in. The rifle was heavy in my grip, but I didn't dare lose my only defense. When that howling screech echoed through the trees behind me, I redoubled my speed, praying that it wouldn't be able to find me before I reached Maggie. The frigid air burned my lungs and my throat was raw by the time that I had reached the snow-covered landing strip. I almost cried with joy at the sight of my bright yellow Maggie waiting patiently for my return. I reached the cargo hatch and swung it open, throwing myself inside and pulling it shut behind me. Just as another one of those haunting wails had reached my ears, only closer this time. Much closer. I didn't dare look out the windows as I threw off my pack and rifle and climbed back into the pilot seat. I buckled on my harness and my hands danced over the controls. The startup procedure second nature. Battery master on, fuel selector to center, mixture lever forward, fuel oil shutoff lever down. A resounding high-pitched howl penetrated the cabin and something black had moved outside, rushing from window to window, door to door searching. It was here now and trying to find a way inside. Concentrate. Throttle at 10%. Fuel pressure pumped to 5 PSI. Engine primed. I froze. My windshield had suddenly gone completely black, shrouding me in darkness. Even though I couldn't see anything in the feature of this void just a foot away from my face, I could feel its desperation. I felt its sightless gaze and below that, some dark malice, an inhuman and alien hunger. I pressed the starter switch and the nine-cylinder radial engine started turning over, only slowly at first, laggard and sluggish. My blood chilled as I realized that it wasn't catching, it wasn't starting. My thoughts flew back to the engine problems that I had been experiencing before my emergency landing, and in that moment I was certain that my luck had finally run out. 
but then a backfire and then another and then a third, coughing black puffs of smoke from the exhaust. And then it caught, and that big and beautiful Pratt & Whitney radio took over, the loud drone rising smooth and steady as Maggie awoke from her slumber. I pushed the throttle forward, inertia pressing me into my seat. I no longer cared about the engine's misfires or the storm. A fiery death in the trees was preferable to whatever that thing had in store for me, I was sure. The snow was deep and even with the tundra tires I had to work to keep from nosing over as it began to gain speed. At some point the black mass had disappeared from my windscreen and I was greeted with the glorious sight of an open path before me. With the passing of the storm front the wind had shifted directions and I was into a headwind now perfect for my needs. I pushed the throttle to full and pulled back gently on the yoke. I felt the wheels leave the ground, now free from the snow's drag, and I continued my climb up until I was above the trees and gently banking back toward the south towards home. As I passed over the landing strip, I thought that I could just make out a black shape in the ground below, stretching and snaking along after me in its futile pursuit before I lost it in the trees. The engine miss returned after another 10 minutes of flying, but Maggie carried me back to safety. She always took care of me. 40 minutes later, I was back on the ground in Fairbanks in taxi in for the hangar. Stopping the bush plane just outside, I shut her down, unbuckled myself, and carefully climbed down to the runway, where my body fought with itself for which was going to happen first, the puking or the passing out. At this point, I would happily suffer either. Mike Nichols came jogging out of the hangar after hearing my approach and helped steady me. Jesus, Hoop, you gave us all a scare. He smiled. Must have been a heck of a fight. Looked like you saw a ghost, man. I could only nod and stumble my way towards the warmth of the hangar, grateful for his shoulder to brace myself against. Just before we reached the service door, he paused and looked back at Maggie. Bucket told me you had some engine problems but he didn't say anything about a fire. I frowned and shook my head. No fire. I lost some cylinders. He stood there a moment longer, an odd expression on his face, before opening the door and ushering me inside. Weird. I thought I saw some black smoke coming from under the engine cowl right after you shut her down. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you're staying safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. 
LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply.